0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everybody and welcome back to The New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network in conjunction with the Journal of Women's History. I'm Sandy Olgin, today's host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Professor Rebecca Ingram about her new book, Women's Work: How Culinary Culture Shaped Modern Spain, published by Vanderbilt University Press. Professor Ingram teaches courses at the University of San Diego in Modern and Contemporary Iberian Cultural Studies and Literature, and she is also an affiliated faculty in Women's and Gender Studies. She speaks to us today as an expert in food studies and feminist theory. Rebecca Ingram, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Sandy. It's such a delight to be with you today.
0: It's a delight to have you too. Uh, Rebecca, I wonder if you could begin by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you were born where you went to school how you became interested in spain spanish literature and spanish culinary culture and anything else that takes your fancy fancy awesome.
1: yeah i'm happy to talk about that i am originally from a small town just outside of atlanta georgia um and so you know one would think that spain and its culinary cultures are very distant from you know the southern culture that i absolutely grew up in um but i first became interested in spain when i did a homestay um the summer of 1996 i was one of those folks who was not interested in sticking around for the olympics in atlanta instead i wanted to take off and go somewhere else and so i spent about eight weeks living with a family in rural andalusia and huelva um and there um you know as a 18-year-old from small-town Georgia. Um, It was really eye-opening to live with a family that politically identified as socialist and communist, and also to understand um, what their lives were like in that kind of late 90s context. Um, And so after that experience, I knew in college um, at Emory that I would absolutely study Spanish um, because it was something I continued to be interested in. Um, But originally, I wanted to be a diplomat, and so I also studied political science, international relations, Um, but ultimately found that the kinds of questions that political scientists asked about Spain, for example, or Germany, because I also studied German um, in college, those questions weren't satisfying. They didn't get to the kinds of things I wanted to know about um, and so I had one of these transformational research experiences as an undergrad um, that comes from independent study with a faculty member. That faculty member is Annabel Martin, who is now at Dartmouth. Um, and I was able to kind of dig into contemporary writing from philosophers about um, Basque nationalism, for example, um, and how that showed up in contemporary Basque film and literature. Um And so, I don't know, I think, Cindy, we both, we all have these experiences, right, with research at some moment that kind of opens our eyes to the kinds of work we can do. And that was absolutely mine.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm wondering, what Um, is it that the questions were answered through literature that you couldn't get answered through political science?
1: um, I wanted to know about um, the political and cultural reasons for Um, identify, I mean, in the most simple way, you know, this was over 20 years ago that I worked on this project, um, that folks supported something, you know, like political terrorism. I wanted to understand that. Um, And so, you know, I researched this extensively in several classes as an undergrad, and political science, and you had statistics, and you had, um, you know, all of these different ideas about game theory and so forth and so on. And I was like, no, that I want to know the stories. I want to know, you know, people's lived experiences, um, the kind of challenges folks had faced um, that led to um, political adherence to political violence, for example, um, or not. Um, And so I think that was what definitely drew me into that undergraduate research project. Um, And, you know, after that I spent a year in Germany um, working for a non-governmental organization um, and I figured out you know, I really need to go back to grad school. I can continue doing this reading, doing this research. Um, And so I was very uh, excited to be accepted to Duke, their Romance Studies program. Um, And that's where I completed my PhD um, and started the research that is at the center um, of women's work as a book. That's
0: fantastic. And and of course you needed to go back to Spain. So after your stint in Germany.
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. tell you, that first semester in grad school, after like becoming fluent in German all year, it was like you know the the Spanish Siglo de Oro theater class, the you know the Golden Age theater class, and I I think I cried after every class because I was like my brain does not understand this anymore. It took one semester to get back in the groove, but gosh, that was a very challenging semester.
0: I imagine. <laughs> So uh, shifting gears a bit, could you tell us a bit about the main subjects of your study, Emilia Pardo Bazán, Carmen de Burgos, Gregorio Marañón, and Nicolás Pradera?
1: Absolutely. Um, so in, in focusing on these writers um, and also the Instituto de Cultura, which is the focus of the last chapter, um, I wanted to understand how culinary writing um, as included in cookbooks, because we're really talking about cookbooks that Pardo Bazán wrote, cookbooks that Carmen de Burgos wrote, um, and a cookbook that Gregorio Marañón wrote the prologue for, and the cookbook is actually by Nicolás Um I wanted to understand how all of these intellectuals, especially in the case of Marañón, Pardo Bazán, and Carmen de Burgos, um, were writing about cooking, They weren't just writing about cooking, they were really addressing a whole range of ideas about um, womanhood, about modern Spain, about national Spain, um, and about Spain's modernization. Um, And you know, as a feminist scholar, I was really struck by the fact that you know, Carmen de Burgos and Emilia Pardo Bazan are two of the most well-known feminist writers from, you know, the late 19th century, the long 19th century, the early 20th century. And Gregorio Marañon was one of the architects of Spain's democratic second republic. And so I found it very engaging that they were using paratexts in cookbooks to say particular things to audiences, audiences that um, would buy the cookbooks and read them, and perhaps audiences that maybe only knew about their participation in cookbook projects. Um, And so that was what drew me to uh, these works in particular. Um, And, you know, at that point, when I first started researching on these projects, I felt like there was a lot of attention, especially in the media, being given to contemporary oak cuisine projects in Spain. You know, these fancy restaurants and fancy chefs. Many of, which, yes, we all know about these that were located in the Basque Country and Catalonia, and of course, other parts of Spain. But there was so much attention given to the Basque Country and Catalonia, in particularly. particular. Um, but nobody at that point had really worked on culinary and gastronomical texts from the 19th century, from the early 20th century. And if you're going to think about the nation and nation building, um, that's the period you have to look back to. It's not enough to look at late 20th century Spain and early 21st century Spain and ask questions about the links between um, a Spanish or Catalan or Basque identity and cooking or gastronomy. Um, And so, you know, I'm always grateful to my uh, dissertation director Stephanie Seabirth she's like Rebecca, you can't do this project unless you look back to the 19th century, and I did. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's been work on this 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 kind of writing since then, but there's still a goldmine of text that folks are just starting to look at um, and kind of to better understand the roles of culinary and gastronomical writing um, in the 19th century and the 20th century.
0: Right. And as you suggest, it's that early 20th century period that is so tumultuous in Spain in which they're talking about nationalism in all sorts of ways that I was struck by the discussion, the culinary discussions being very similar to the discussions about music in the same period.
1: Right, right. Yes, there's lots of parallels between your latest book, Sandy, and um, and this work. And then also, I think um, I quoted you extensively. <laughs> the first versions of this. <laughs> your research was very instrumental in how I thought about this group of texts. So I definitely owe you an
0: intellectual debt. <laughs> an that, that wasn't one. me trying to fish for anything. Yeah. I was oh. just really, I was <laughs> really struck by it. I was just thought, oh, they're gathering the recipes, the way they gathered songs, the way they Absolutely. gathered folk tales.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, so <laughs> why were you interested in these specific people's takes on culinary culture in Spain? Um, and you've answered this a little bit. Why this particular time period, the early 20th century?
1: Um, well, I was first drawn to Emilia Pardo Bazán. Um, you know, she is held up as this kind of um, you know, exemplary figure for understanding what a woman who was also an intellectual, who was also, you know, a very prolific um, writer of fiction and essays, um, I was like, why in the world did she write cookbooks? Um, What was that about? Um, Why did she write cookbooks whenever um, it seemed like she was trying or she, she spent so much of her career otherwise negotiating gendered expectations um, of what her writing and thinking and just existence and in intellectual spaces should do, right? Right. Um, And so as I researched more about these cookbooks, I found out that they were the last two volumes of a whole series that she wrote um, called The Biblioteca de la Mujer. So a a library that she created of translations um, in these texts uh, that were meant to introduce Spanish women to feminism. And so I was like, wow, like, here we have, like, you know, cooking, this kind of task that takes up so much time, um, you know, for, I would say, (laughs) contemporary women, as lots of folks have seen during the pandemic, Um, but also working class women and women in the middle class at the margins of the middle class during part of Bethan's time period, Um, and that she linked them specifically to her feminist project was also fascinating. Um, but then you get into those prologues, you know, not even including the recipes, um, and there are a number of contradictory ideas um, that she expresses about the women that she was trying to reach with this cookbook project and with her whole project to introduce Spanish women to feminism. Um, and so doing more research, I found out that, you know, she was actually quite frustrated um, with, um, women. she was like, what is it? Like, I can't get them interested in feminism with all of these other wonderful works, like a biography of Maria de Fallas, for example, um, a translation of John Stuart Mill. Um, and so I'm going to give them something that perhaps interests them more, and this is cookbooks. And so I felt like, Oh, well, that is that cynicism? Is she exasperated with them and just throwing her hands up in the air? Um, and ultimately, I came to see it's it's a little of both. Like, she's doing feminist work in these cookbooks, um, especially in La Cocina Española Antigua, um, the first cookbook that kind of attempts to recover and catalog um Spain's historical cooking or its traditional cooking in one volume, um, she's really saying that these elderly women, these women who cook for subsistence in their own homes, that they are producing um, important cultural texts, like cultural texts, but, you know, it's a cultural practice that's important for the Spanish nation. Um, and, you know, you are talking about collecting songs, like collecting recipes is absolutely and something that she frames as a folkloric practice um, that shows that Spanish cuisine was rich and it had a history, it was important, and it should be protected. Um, yeah, I found that.
0: Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> no, I, I found that very fascinating. And, and actually for the audiences who are listening, could you explain a little bit about what Pardo Bazán's version of feminism was so that you can link it with her culinary uh, works.
1: Um, she really focused on, you know, in other writing, she really um, thought that Spanish women should have greater access to education. Um, an education of ideas, an education of thought, um, and not just a domestic education that, um, or the most minimal, in, education that would not leave them prepared for, um, you know, whatever their jobs might be, whether that is, you know, in a in a role like hers or, you know, in their roles as wives or female members of families. Um, and then as I discovered later on um, in a speech that I quote in the very f- first part of the book in the introduction, um, she gave a, a very interesting um speech to the i'm gonna get it just right for you um this is on december 3rd 1916 she spoke at the inauguration of the escuela del hogar y Profesional de la mujer in madrid so this is like a school um focused on the home but also professional training for women in madrid And so she was talking to women and she made very clear this is not just an ideal or an abstract woman it's the woman of today Um, and in this speech she connected the home its tasks and women who undertook them to the health of spain and to the spanish race and so this idea of a modern woman um, her home cooking and, and for Puerto bathan these feminist politics, these were not separate things. Um, instead, um, through food, through cooking, um, women could... And here I'm going to cite in Spanish, la mujer debe reclamar el ejercicio de todas las actividades al alcance de su capacidad y rechazar la suposición de que haya actividades que le están vedadas por el hecho de ser mujer. So women should reclaim the practice of all activities she is capable of and reject the supposition that any activities are off limits to her simply for being a woman. Um, and so, you know, in an extended version of this, she said, women should demand their full rights, both civic and political, or the idea of citizenship is a delusion. Um, so I'm always struck by the perspective of Pardubatan of that comes through in that speech. And... You know, a slightly different project that she had in the cookbooks. And, you know, La Cocina Española Antigua came out a few years before this speech. Um, there's been some debate about when the second volume, La Cocina Española Moderna, actually came out, if that was, I think, 1914. I think the Biblioteca Nacional didn't put a date on it for a while, but I think most scholars have come to agree. Um, it was probably published in 1917, 1918. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting to think that Pardubathan also saw this domestic space as one that was important to a regenerating nation um, and to the health of Spain, right? Um, and that women had important roles um, within that domestic space. Now, you know, then this is what I get into in the chapter. Um, is Pardubathan talking about middle-class women? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. She's talking about middle-class women. She's talking about women at the margins of the middle class, um, and what I showed in the book when it comes to the working class or working-class women, um, her perspective is a lot more cynical. Um, I think, <laughs> you know, and what I talked about in the book, and also, you know, in her culinary and gastronomical writing in the press. Um, you know, and I don't think it's unusual for women of her period, but, you know, this kind of disdain that she shows for working class women servants, cosine does. Um, was quite shocking, especially, you know, to somebody like me. And I think so many feminist scholars of this period have long looked up to her and I was very disillusioned <laughs> to find out um, how dismissive she was of these working class cocineras and criadas, like cooks and maids, um, who were staples in middle class households and, and making them work.
0: Right, it seems like her nationalism is based on an idealized version of what a maybe what a working class or what a peasant woman is like and the traditions that they've had. Yeah.
1: So, you know, part of was not alone in this kind of idealization of peasant women. Um, You know, that was something that other intellects of her time period also engaged in as part of nation-building discourses. But when it came to, you know, an actual working-class woman who, you know, might decide to become politically active or support the political activities of others, you know, political activity in terms of working-class mobilization, um, there was a lot more disdain or even um, kind of a dehumanizing attitude that I perceived in her writing about that version of the working-class
0: yeah, I think you made that pretty clear in your work. And is this why you call her an ambivalent feminist?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, if we're thinking about um, feminism as something that does not just belong or engage the middle class and, you know, in the United States, we talk about Kimberly Crenshaw's term intersectionality and how it's kind of given us new tools to understand the ways in which feminist thought can also intersect with things like race, ethnicity, and social class. Um, you know, I think if we're using the tools of contemporary analysis to look back at part of Botham's projects and also feminist political or social projects of, folks who lived in her age, I think we have to think about, um, you know, what how was the working class involved or brought into feminist movements in this period? Um, I don't get the feeling in my research of Part of Bath that she imagined a place for them. Um, I would love to read a perspective that proved me wrong, you know. Um, (laughs) but, you know, I think that's something that definitely um, was part of my approach to her text or, you know, they just kind of kept bugging me and kept pushing me forward to kind of understand um, what I was reading and what those ideas were that I I was seeing in the text with the close reading and reading around them and understanding um, the context that produced them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So moving to your next chapter on Carmen de Burgos, she's also highly regarded as a feminist writer who happened to write cookbooks how do her approaches to cooking and feminism compare with those of Pardo Bazan?
1: First of all, I think it's always fascinating to consider um, the career of a writer intellectual like Carmen de Burgos compared to Pardo Bazan. Like, Carmen de Burgos was, you know, a woman from a middle class family. Um, she did not have connections with the aristocracy like Pardo Bazan. Um, she left an abusive husband who she married at age 16, early in her marriage, to start working as a teacher and a writer. Like, she was supporting herself and her child. That's kind of amazing
0: for that period.
1: Right. Um, You know, she was the long-term lover of Ramon Gomez de la Serna, um, and I always giggle with my students about the fact that Ramon had an affair with her daughter later on. Um, We giggle about it now. It's probably devastating in the moment, I have to acknowledge. Um, But, you know, she was an intellectual figure in her moment in Madrid, but she was also a writer who wrote to entertain folks. Um, And so she wrote the books that we most, the book that we most associate with her feminist thought, um, La Mujer Moderna y Sus Derechos, right? Also a number of feminist speeches that she gave throughout Spain. Um, She would print, you know, political articles in the press um, in one week, and then the next week turn around and write, you know, a very superficial and frivolous text Um, that kind of kept folks on their toes, I would imagine. Um, I think what's fascinating about her and these cookbooks is that they belong to a series of her texts that are known as the practical manuals, right? Um, So, you know, there was one volume on the arts of seduction and there's another volume on how to be a woman. (laughs) And so, you know, these kind of potboiler books that were, basically, kiosk literature, they didn't cost a lot of money, um, they sold, and Carmen de Burgos needed to sell them to to support herself, um, and the cookbooks were part of that kind of writing. Um, and so scholars had tended to look at those and say, oh, well, no, the, we don't take that seriously, that's not part of her political or feminist or her intellectual work that we should read, like literary scholars. Um, and so, but I had to take a look, I had to see like, what is she doing in these cookbooks? Um, and, you know, how could I compare and contrast her to the work I'd already done on Um, And so that's how I was drawn to them. Um, and what I discovered is that she is, she's using this kind of association with frivolity, this association with the superficial um, in the cookbooks, particularly to embed kind of radical ideas into these cookbooks about um, women and how they should think about their cooking, their food work, their cooking practice, but also think about their roles in modernizing Spanish society. Um, and so, you know, I talk about the paratext in these cookbooks and we're talking about a letter to her editor um, and then two versions of an introduction. One is like a standard introduction that's like six or eight pages long and then in the reissue of that same cookbook under a new title in the nineteen twenties called Nueva Cocina Practica. Um, she expands that very conventional introduction of like what, seven or eight pages, into like a an eighty page essay. <laughs>
0: So the who reads role... that, right? Besides I know, you,
1: exactly. <laughs> it's not the role of gastronomy and cooking in Spanish society. It's really like this very scholarly work, um, and I, you know, I might be one of the few folks who has done that was <laughs> reading of that very long introduction, and so I found that really um, fascinating because that is not what you would expect from a book that, in theory, she wrote or collaborated with in order to earn her way.
0: What So what were some of those radical ideas that you found embedded in that introduction?
1: Um, I loved the way she practices what another scholar, Maite Thubi has called double writing. Um, and so the tone and the expressiveness of her writing, she'll say, oh, you're going to think that this is not intellectual. You're going to think that this is just this little thing that doesn't mean anything. But she embeds these little, like, you know, stickler comments about, um, you know, I could be offended by my editor's request that I write such a book, but instead, you know, what she does is narrate an alternative response that kind of um, underscores the gender dynamics Um that are part of that letter, you know, that editor's request that she collaborate um, in cookbook writing. Um, I also compared um, what she writes in these texts to you know, the, you know, the printed version of the feminist speeches that we have access to in the archives. Um, and these are absolutely ideas in those feminist speeches and in the cookbooks. Um, that want to show Spanish women who have the extra pesetas to buy this inexpensive volume, um, that feminism does not have to be alienating. This is her term, alienating. (laughs) It doesn't have to be masculinizing, another term of hers, um, that it can be something that they engage in practice um, from where they are. Um, you know, with the responsibilities that they may have in the home, but also begin to imagine, for example, a role in the parliament, right? Or following her model into a career as a writer or as a teacher. Um, And so, you know, if you're thinking about these kind of conventional ideas we have about um, domesticity, that cookbooks supposedly uphold. Um, you know, the radical ideas is that Burgos is giving us a model, right, of how to turn patriarchal thinking on its head and that double writing, um, and also a model of how to think about the domestic space and women's work within that space and their roles within that space um, and kind of expand on them or you know, if not blow them up, you know, to to, you know blow up the kitchen, right? Um, but think about the kitchen and food work as a discourse, as a practice that is already important for Spain, it's already important for Spain's modernization, um, and that women and their work are part of it. Um, and that to me is, is kind of radical, especially for that period. And it continues to be radical today. I mean, this is something that those of us who study food talk about. Um, why has it taken some fields so long to think about food critically or to think about cooking critically? And there is this long-term association of food studies and food work with domesticity um, and that that is not the site of radical political thinking. Um,
0: Right. And, and how do you parlay those recipes into a role in parliament?
1: Exactly. I mean, Pardubathan does not give us, Pardubathan, pardon, Burgos does mm-hmm. not give us the step-by-step instructions for that, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> um, I think her idea is just to plant the seed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think what's interesting is to compare these cookbooks and their prologues to the speeches and where she's just like, you know, you need to think about this because, um, the marriage may not work out. Um, and then what do you need? You need an education. You need to know, you know, what is your, um, belonging and what are your strengths in this society? So, um, yeah, I don't have that text right in front of me or else. know, <laughs> it's okay. Quote, but it is absolutely <laughs> in the book. <laughs> we
0: should take yeah, a no. look there. <gasps> yes. No, I, I saw that. Um, Okay, so your your work shifts gears in Chapter 3 when you discuss the polymath Gregorio Marañon and his prologue to the cookbook by chef and restaurant owner Nicolasa Pradera. Why did you choose to concentrate on Marañon, especially given that he didn't actually author that cookbook?
1: Right. So just to give you an idea of why I wanted to look at this book, when I first started researching this topic, um, Nicolasa Pradera's restaurant, Casa Nicolása, was still open and functioning in San Sebastián and so yeah right (laughs) so it only closed down about a decade ago now um and i was very sad not to have a chance to visit um while i was doing the kind of on the ground research for this project and so i was interested in Porareda's kind of um the framings of her as kind of this important figure for basque cuisine and i initially thought that i might find connections between contemporary projects um the new basque cuisine that kind of came about starting in the late 70s and the early 80s um and a project like prareras but then i was reading the cookbook itself um and you know cookbooks are interesting texts You're looking and you have recipes and um, sometimes you have a very present authorial voice in those recipes um, and other times you don't. And my reading of Pradera's cookbook, her actual recipes, is that it was really hard to detect a strong authorial voice. But where I did get a sense of her um, was from the prologue that Gregorio Marañon authored to accompany the book. And so I kept researching and kept researching, and then I was astounded by um, work that started, you know, that was published in the mid-90s, I want to say, that catalogued La Cocina de Nicolasa, the cookbook Pradera wrote, as part of Gregorio Marañon's intellectual production. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, But then, you know, I read a little bit more and it turns out that Gregorio Marañon authored hundreds and hundreds of prologues, and they're definitely understood as part of his kind of um, intellectual body of works. And so I was like, what is this kind of connection? Like, what is is Marañon's goal? In framing Nicolasa the way he does, he calls her the priestess of Basque cuisine. Like, this is a term that he uses to describe her. Um, And then I was fascinated by Pradera as well, like, you know, how difficult it was to find information about her, Um, the fact that she started her career as an adolescent servant in the house of an aristocratic family. Um, And she cooked her way up the social ladder. Um, in many ways, um, she acquired an education. Um, she studied at another well-known chef's um, cooking school, Ignacio Dominic. Um, she married a butcher, um, and so you know, through all of these different ways, which the details were hard to find, um, we see her. Um, follow a model of femininity and womanhood that um was quite different like i don't know that we would describe her as la nueva mujer moderna this kind of archetype of the new modern woman um but she definitely was not the domestic angel of the house um and so in reading montserrat miller's work on markets in barcelona i really found um in Miller's work, a nice way to think of, of Pradera and understand kind of her social and economic role um, in this period. She was somebody who achieved social mobility through marriage and also through education um, and really, you know, created a legacy for herself. But Marañón, shockingly, um, erases a lot of this um, information about Pradera and the way he frames her and constructs her um, in the prologue that he authored for her cookbook.
0: Could I interrupt you for a second? Of course, yes. For for our listeners, can you, who may not know who Gregorio Marañón was, could you please give a background so we can see how shocking it is to have him writing a prologue for this? <laughs>
1: was a physician um, an intellect like um, they One, you know he was one of the folks and sandy you're gonna know the details more than I am um, you know who orchestrated all of the political machinations that were happening in the background so that Spain's Second Republic could actually come into existence and its democratic constitution could be written um, he saw patience Um, And he was an incredibly prolific writer, in addition to having a medical practice and being involved in politics. Um, And, you know, I also find it interesting to think of him as a eugenicist um, and as somebody that Carmen de Burgos thought was awesome. Um, But, he, you know, his idea about women, his ideas about women were pretty... Biologically grounded. Um, if we think about understandings of womanhood um, and women that are a bit more nuanced, um, Bordo's ideas are absolutely more nuanced than.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was also a sort of international sexologist too. He was part of that entire absolutely.
1: craze. I mean, he really had fingers in so many different fields that um, it's really shocking to think about, um, you know, him writing this cookbook prologue. Um, At the same time, he was very invested, you know, politically and also through his intellectual work um, in an idea of modern Spain and what modernity could look like in Spain. Um, And so, yeah, a fascinating figure in lots and lots of ways. (laughs)
0: Um, Okay, so... Well, actually, one of the things I did want to ask in in relation to this is, so what is Gregorio Marañón's idea about women and cooking in the modern nation?
1: Um, In terms of Nicolasa, um, he idealizes her um, as somebody who is connected to an authentic Spain. And of course, with this term authentic, we have to understand it as an unstable term and a problematic term. Um, Nah. (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, So Marañón connects Braderia to an authentic Spain, but one that can also be modern. And that's the paradoxical thing. So if we think about authentic traditional Spain, um, you know, outside of Spain in the 19th century in particular, like travel writers who came and wrote about Spanish food focused on the garlic and the potatoes and the burned cooking oil um, as all things that made Spanish cuisine unfit for a, I want to say, a modern palate, a distinguished palate, an educated just palate. just
0: French or British palate.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. I, read, I
0: read lots of these travelogues, too. <laughs>
1: yeah, right? Um, and so is like, no, 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 uh-uh. This is this image of the backward Spain of the the black legend Spain that is not coherent with um, the creation of a modern Spain a modern Spain that is modern even in its cooking right
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so he identified in Nicolasa's cooking something that still had those connections to tradition to the authentic but was elaborate and informed and skilled enough that it was not off-putting or alienating to more civilized, and here I am using civilized in this very, like, entre comillas and in quotation marks way, um, you know, a version of Spain, a version of of cuisines in Spain that was not off-putting to civilized palates from outside of Spain. Or, you know, I think we could say um, folks who wanted to think about food um, differently um, within Spain. So I think that is what I think about in terms of how he frames Nicolasa in that prologue.
0: Yeah, and if, as I recall, you also link this to the growth of this tourist industry in spain and this idea that you need to have food that's palatable to all of these visitors Uh who are coming in right
1: absolutely and um there's been incredible work done on these kind of early tourism initiatives um i wrote and alluded to um, this kind of tourist guide written in english by sanchez canton about all the different ways that spain was modern and its factories and Um, I think it's roadways. And so um, it was coherent with, you know, in our cooking, in Nicola Zabrarera, we also have this version of very modern Spain that is understandable and palatable to outsiders.
0: Excellent. So tell us about your next chapter about the Instituto de Cultura y Biblioteca Popular de la Dona. What was yeah. it, what was its function, and what relationship did it have to the development of Spanish feminism?
1: Right. And so, you know, and thinking about these last two chapters of the book, the book, the the chapter about Nicolás Sopratera and Gregorio Marañón, and then also the very last chapter, um, you know, cookbooks, cooking from a book um, is this very kind of, in this period, middle-class practice. Like if you can buy a book and if you can think about what you choose to prepare, um, what you might purchase specific ingredients to prepare, um, this is a practice associated with having um money, the ability to do that, and not just eat or cook based on necessity, based on what you can afford, based on what you need to survive. Um, I was interested in Praneda because she started as a very clearly working class, you know, born into the peasantry woman, but I also wanted to find a way to understand um, more about if not the culinary cultures of the working class in this period, um, how working class women were also cooking or being entreated to cook or to think about cooking in this period. And so um, I had the great good fortune to make contact with a librarian in Madrid. And she's like, you really should look um, at the institute at the Biblioteca Francesca Bonmason, which is in Barcelona. Um, And they are located in the Institut de Cultura in that historic building and they have had at that point all of the archives from the institute, um, and she said just look there and see what you find and so I did. Um, I went there and I spent a fantastic three weeks um, paging through ACTAs, these kind of um, official reports for um, many of the years of existence of the Instituto de Cultura. And so what is the Instituto de Cultura? It was an educational institute organization and lending library. Um, that was founded at the end of the first decade of the 20th century by Francesca Bomason. And so this was a wealthy, you know, upper middle class, Catholic, Catalan nationalist woman who was associated with the Catalan Nationalist Political Party, the, um, the Liga Regionalista. Um, and she embodied this very conservative feminist kind of um way of being in the world um and it this was a project that started um on a suggestion from her priest um who was known in barcelona in this period of being a very progressive priest Um, but um it was a way to educate women um to give them culture um and it was also you know as the records like to talk about a lot, one of the, the first lending libraries for women in all of Europe. Um, and so that's when it started. Um, and so it had, you know, it grew, I think it outgrew um, two previous locations before it moved to where the Biblioteca Francesca Bonmason is today in Barcelona, which is in the um, San Preda neighborhood, in the San Preda um on that street. And, um, It taught classes in stenography. It taught classes in religion. Um, It taught basic primary and secondary education classes. Um, Because my son was very deeply Catholic, it also taught classes in religion. Um, And cooking classes and domestic economy classes were part of its curricula from the very first days. Um, And so I also was interested in the institute, because I knew of one of the figures that we think about, if we're thinking about celebrity chefs in Spain, you know, you'd know, you think that celebrity chefs are something that's super contemporary that we only think about in the 21st century, for example. Um, but if we're thinking about what this idea of celebrity is, in relation to being a chef or being, you know, this kind of cook with authority, um, we can trace the phenomenon back much earlier. Um, and so Rondi, Joseph um is somebody I, I define as a celebrity chef. Um, and he taught cooking classes at the Institute starting in 1918, um, up until after the Spanish Civil War, when the Institute had passed into the hands of the seccion femenina
0: joy <laughs> <laughs> I know right so yeah actually I pr- we probably ought to tell people who the sección feminina what that was all about
1: yeah I'll let you take that one that's your area of <laughs> <laughs> you, Sandy.
0: Oh, well it, it was uh, an organization put on by the women of the Falange party and they taught Spanish women how to be Spanish women uh, through various uh social functions, economic functions. And a lot of the women would go out into the countryside, teach women to cook, teach them how to be proper women. And if you wanted later on to get things like a passport or university education, you had to go through the uh, auxilio social that the sección femenina put together to be trained for at least six months. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And so it's interesting because we think, you know, those of us who have studied this period in Spain and those of us who have studied women in Spain, um, I think it is straightforward to make an association between traditional domesticity um, and connect that, you know, draw a straight line between that kind of you know, traditional domesticity and the training that women received in the Seccion Feminina. Um, But what's fascinating to me, and it's what I tried to highlight um, in this chapter, um, is that domestic economy, education for women, um, education for women about their spheres of authority and influence, um, was actually born out of a progressive kind of transnational um, coalition of folks, um, and so I, you know, I what I've tried to do in this chapter, at least, is, um, you know, acknowledge the, you know, conservative and Catholic and alignment with nationalist Catalan nationalist politics of the institute, but also underscore how these ideas about domestic education um, could also be at the same time very progressive. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's something that um, folks who have studied um, these organizations in Spain have highlighted. Um, Most of those folks that I found tend to be in the history of education, um, not necessarily in gender studies. Um, But Megan Elias here in the United States and Charlotte Biltikoff have done exceptional work. Um, and looking at these early home economists in um, that transnational movement in the early 20th century. Um, and it was fascinating to me to find those connections between what um, institutions like the Institute were doing um, and those kind of more broadly circulating ideas about what um, women should be educated in according to these modern ideas um, about the home as a laboratory, for example, or kitchen work as scientific practice.
0: Right, right. Or economic um, practice, too.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yes.
0: Well, this is actually a nice segue into one of the final questions, which is all of your chapters look at the relationship between culinary advice, modernizing practices, and Spanish modernity. So after all of the research you've done, what does Spanish modernity mean to you? And did these writers shift your thinking about the meaning of mm-hmm.
1: Um, I had an open mind about what I thought Spanish modernity would be. I think, you know, we read and we understand things about, um, the regenerationists, you know, this group of, um, intellectuals from across the political spectrum in this period who really were trying to articulate, um, what modern Spain should look like after the fall of, you know, the empire. Um, I think for me, what's interesting to reflect on, um, after writing this book is that modernity doesn't just exist in, um, the world of ideas or the world of intellect or building roads or electricity. I mean, those are all very, you know, the intellectual and the material, but it also exists in practices um, in the doing of food work, for example, um, and then thinking about those practices um, as linked to contexts and meanings that go beyond subsistence. Um, You know, if we think about food in Spain for so long, what people ate, the majority of the population was absolutely based on subsistence. Um, And we see, you know, transformations that really, you know, take off during this period where people were learning how to read, where um, folks might have an extra peseta or two to go to the movies or maybe buy one of Burgos's kiosk literature books and, you know, page through those recipes and see things that they maybe make in their own kitchens, um, but also see those practices as something that folks do... In other kitchens all across Maine. Um, But thinking about those practices as linked to contexts and new meanings, um, you know, that to me, we're talking about the practices of modernity. um, And that is something that I had not thought about in in quite the same way until I had um, worked on this so extensively.
0: Which is the beauty of doing research and writing is getting. Is changing your mind a bit. So that's great.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: Well, Rebecca, we've taken up a lot of your time. So before we end here, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Absolutely. Um, I just uh, finished a piece um, that should be... Part of a special collection on um, the writings of Manuel Báfriz Montalban, one of the most well-known gastronomical writers of the 20th century um, and early 21st century in Spain. Um, and I was fascinated to connect um, his work with the celebrity chef that I talked about, Josep Rondissoni. Um, and I'm also very excited. Um, I'm headed to Madrid in the spring to work on a new book project um, that I provisionally titled Gastro-Nationalist Spain. And so I'm looking at 21st century ideas of gastro which, you know, this kind of deployments of nationalist thinking and feeling um, that shows up in food and food ways um, in contemporary Spain and all the complications and layers of meaning that come out from, um, from that. Everything from you know, racialized Spaniards who are a population that we're seeing more frequently represented in literary and cultural production, um, but also the very celebrated um, in Spain um, designation of the Mediterranean diet as part of UNESCO's Intangible Cultural Heritage Scheme. So yeah, it's an ambitious book in my head right now. And so I'm looking forward to doing the the on the ground work for that.
0: That sounds like an exciting project.
1: Yeah, I think so. Well,
0: I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And uh, best of luck on this new project.
1: Thank you, Sandy. It's been delightful to chat with
0: you.